Crypto for Newborns podcast, where we take baby steps around the block. I'm your host, Biff Laurie, and this is episode 17. I'm very excited in this episode to bring you the first part of my interview with Dominic Frisbee, who wrote the book, Bitcoin, The Future of Money. I'll provide a link to his book available on Amazon in my show notes. Dominic is a rare and wonderful combination of comedian and financial writer. He's also an accomplished voice actor and the co-host of the UK show Money Pit. When I began researching Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, I came across Dominic's book. Truth be told, there weren't a lot of books on cryptocurrencies or magazines for that matter, and I quickly discovered why. The world of crypto moves and changes so quickly, by the time a published work comes out, it's already obsolete. Not so with Bitcoin, the future of money. Dominic provides a thoughtful and interesting history of Bitcoin, but also explains financial paradigms and global economics with a very entertaining and easy-to-digest style. Obviously, the price of Bitcoin has changed dramatically since his book first came out, but I think the book is timeless in its coverage. If you're normally intimidated by financial information, including Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, the future of money, is a must-read. And I think financial and crypto experts alike will also enjoy the delivery of information as well as Dominic's ideas and theories on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Oh, and if you're wondering who the creator of Bitcoin is, well, Dominic has some ideas about that too. Without further ado, please enjoy part one of my interview with Dominic Frisbee. Well, first of all, Dominic, uh, thank you so much for coming on to the Crypto for Newborns podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure having you, and I highly recommend your book to anyone and everyone interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I just I thought the book was fantastic. You really just make it so uh, easy for people to understand, and you take very, I think, complex kind of financial paradigms and make it very digestible. So uh, kudos to you. I just It was an excellent book, and, and I think anybody who feels intimidated by Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies should absolutely pick it up. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, which, which which book are we talking about? <laughs> oh, Bitcoin, the, fu- <laughs> the Bitcoin, the future of money. Uh, okay, fine. Yeah, that, that one, one. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, so uh, I also I was delighted to discover that you're both a comedian and a financial writer, presenter, a TV host. Uh, tell us a little bit about how those two worlds collided, so to speak. Oh, like most things in one's life, it was totally accidental and it was unplanned. And um, I actually started out doing voiceovers for a living, and I'd made a bit of, and I, then I started doing stand-up comedy. This and. Um, I'd made a bit of money and and uh, there were all these interesting people on the internet talking about things like gold and investments. This is back in 2005 and I, I really wanted to talk to some of these people and I didn't want to have to pay them, you know, an hourly consultancy fee. So sure. I started a podcast as a means to talk to them, probably not unlike what you're doing now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, one of the people I interviewed was this lady called Marion Somerset Webb who ran Money Week, which is the UK's best-selling financial publication she said oh we need people like you to come and write for us and i said well i don't know don't know what i'm talking about and she said no no that doesn't matter <laughs> that's never stood in any journalist's way before and um so uh, i started writing for them and my column was very popular largely because i was you know talking up gold and sure. gold was in a massive bull market at the time and so i looked very clever and um and i think the added thing was is that as a comedian 
you tend to speak clearly about stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the the discipline of comedy, or I should say, the comedy forces the discipline of clarity onto you. Because if you if the audience doesn't understand, they don't laugh. Sure. sure. And so, whereas I think you find in finance. You know, obfuscation a lot of the time is the uh, is the name of the game. Alan Greenspan used to call it purposeful obfuscation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I guess I brought the discipline of clarity to my financial columns and they were very popular. And suddenly I was a financial writer, but I only had to knock out an article once or twice a week and I could still carry on doing my voiceovers and my comedy. And I'm a freelancer and. The more income streams you have, the more money you make. So Absolutely. I carried on doing all of them, you know. Did you always have an interest in finance or was it something, was it hard for you to kind of make, you know, to um, uh, acquire that knowledge and be able to write about it? Or were you always pretty comfortable with financial information and, and that sort of thing? No, I'd, I I always had an interest in systems. Mm-hmm. And by systems, I don't mean like, you know, how a radio FM frequency works or something like that. But I had an, an interest in systems, you know, how the way the game works, the mm-hmm. way a business works, the way, you know, an economy works, the way um, the way a racket works, the way a scam works. I was in those kind of systems mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I could never get my head around why houses cost so much money when they didn't cost much money to build. Right. And there's so much spare land. I just couldn't get my head around it for years. I was trying to figure it out. And then when I started reading about gold and fiat money and money printing and suppressed interest rates and, and, and all the rest of it, suddenly it was my sort of um, light bulb moment. And I was like, ah, oh, now I get how this works. Yeah. And, you know, when you say that, I think I think often sometimes I think a lot of us feel like, oh, we're just a pawn in this big game. But is it really is it some big system? And it's like, yes, yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, once you once you understand that, I mean you know, looking back, I could have played it much better than I did. But, you know, at the end of the day, all I had to do was borrow as much money as I could in 1993 and buy as many houses as I possibly could and keep <laughs> buying more. Yes. The, the more they went up, you know, and that's all you ever really needed to do. You didn't even need to rent them out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I've always had poor timing myself where I always kind of buy at the peak. So, um, yeah, I need to I need to work on my timing a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, well, we all do that. Um, so share with us a little I, bit. I was, oh, go ahead. I, I got caught out. I was buying, there's a cryptocurrency that I really like called Decred, and I was buying some of that a couple of weeks ago. And mm-hmm. looking back, I was a couple of days off the top. Yeah, yeah. Share with us a little about when you first learned about Bitcoin and what intrigued you about it. I looked at, looked at my emails the other day, and the first mention I had of Bitcoin in my emails <laughs> was December 2010 oh. and it was 22 cents oh. <laughs> and uh, there was some newsletter there's a newsletter I read called the free man's captain's log or something like that some real peculiar niche newsletter that uh-huh. some old boy started up <laughs> about how to sort of become an expat and 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 roam from country to country and have a have a passport in Panama and a passport in Singapore and a bank account in, you know, I don't know, uh, Hong Kong. Do you know what I mean? One of these kind of outside of the above the system mm-hmm. lives. And right. I was it's always a lifestyle that's appealed to me in in theory a lot more than in practice. Yes. And so I used to read that. And, and he just reposted an article about Bitcoin 
from a magazine called PC World, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which for those of you listeners don't know PC World is a very low rent chain of computer stores in the UK. Um, I don't even know, like a bit like Target, but for computers, if you know what I mean, just mm-hmm. low end computer, low end stuff. And it had this magazine and it had this article about Bitcoin of all things. It was so prescient. And um, and I just remember reading it and thinking, oh, that's a good idea. And then I didn't do anything about it, you know. Yeah. I, I talked to another friend of mine recently and the same thing where it was around the same time. It was uh, in this 20, 25 cents range. And she was going to put $500. And her husband said, no, nah, it's a waste. That'll it's it's You're just throwing money away. So Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> even, even the thing is, like, you know what the biggest barrier was? It wasn't price. It was the new tech. It was like... Unless you're a computer coder, you, you know, even now today, getting to grips with the tech just takes a bit of effort. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and um, back then, I think that was the biggest deterrent. People were like, well, how do I buy it? How do I get it? Right, what, right. Well, well, well. And it was just easier just to sort of let it go. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like you know, going into your brokerage account and buying shares in Apple. It was just, sure, sure. It was just more complicated than that. Yeah. Tell me, so we go uh, moving through your book in chapter three, um, the chapter, the rise of Bitcoin and the disappearance of its maker. Um, yeah. People don't know, obviously, that the, the creator of uh, Bitcoin goes by the pseudonym uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. What was and is the continuous... Everyone knows that. Yes. <laughs> uh, what was and is the continued purpose of the creator's anonymity and, in effect, disappearance? Well, I think if it had been invented by, you know, James Smith, mm-hmm. people were able to look up James Smith and find out where he went to school and whether he was a prefect at school or not, and if he'd got into the school sports team and where he went to university and what he read and what his first jobs were and what his people at work thought of him and stuff. I think that could have prejudiced the project Mm -hmm. in a way that James, you know, you just have this anonymous name. So I think the purpose of the name was to keep who he was out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, he wrote the only code. He designed it. He he had the eureka moment that solved the problem of double spending that had confounded computer coders for that long. Mm-hmm. But once he'd got that, he just put it out there and let it become an open source project. Yeah. And so I'm I'm sure that's the purpose of of the the anonymous name. And you know, it may have been two or three people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I theorize in the book that it was this chat called Nick Zabo. And looking right. back now, I think I got that wrong. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And it was probably a combination of a guy called Dave Kleiman, who's now dead, mm-hmm. Craig Wright, and maybe one other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, although I'm not even convinced about that. The only reason I'm, I'm so sure it's Craig is, is, is that uh, people, two different individuals who I have total enough the faith in have both assure me that they've that Craig has shown them the keys. Mm, mm-hmm. So so mm. you know 
but that's an argument I really don't want to get involved in because since I've written the book, I haven't really followed the story that closely. Uh huh. And, and I know yeah, Nick, so oh, go ahead. Uh, Nick the, Zabo had denied it to you, basically, that he was not Yeah, Satoshi. Nick denied it to me, and, and I still maintain that if any single... He's the only single person alive that had the breadth and depth of experience and intellect to have created Bitcoin at that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I stress, you know, you have to, you have to be of a certain age. You know, you, I just don't believe it was, it was, I, I believe it, it was, you know, almost certainly a guy in his thirties, maybe early forties mm -hmm. who put it together. I don't, you know, there's a guy who can come along and write some amazing code who's 25, but I don't believe a 25 year old would have done it then. Yes. Do you yes. know what I mean? So you had to have been born at the right time. You had to have had the right experience. You had to have the variety of experience. You had to have had the right political beliefs. You had to, had to have the the knowledge. And this is this weird intersection of knowledge at, between sort of monetary history, computer programming, database, mathematics, law, um, online anonymity, you know, th this sort of weird cross section. And I sort of think that the only person who had all that was Nick Zabo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and, you know, he did come close to inventing it, but um, he invented this thing called BitGold, but he never actually coded it. Mm -hmm. um, by all accounts, Nick Zabo's, well, I, I don't know this. I, I'm not sure how good a coder Nick Zabo is. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, but by most accounts, the original code of Bitcoin was a bit clunky. You know, it had to be rewritten. Yeah, I, I had heard uh, recently um, Nick Szabo was interviewing uh, uh, Vitalik uh, Buterin, you know, the co-founder of Ethereum, and Ooh. I was amazed how Nick could really take, like, the kind of techno talk of Vitalik and really make it very uh, easy to understand. And, like, you talk about a certain kind of person of a certain era, and, uh, you know, he, he was able to kind of make it, I think, more mainstream-ready, so to speak, and and it, I just thought that kind of went into your ideas about how he was able to make this um, translate this into something that uh, people would eventually kind of embrace. So yeah, well, Vitalik is a genius. Yes, yes. And he was there right from the start, and he's young. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't even know how old Vitalik is now. But I think I'm he's twenty-seven now, so he was, I think, You're seventeen kidding. years old. Yeah, yeah. So, but I I don't believe Vitalik could have done what he did without. You know, he was standing on the shoulders of giants. Yes, yeah. And I and is he really only twenty seven now? I, That's I, extraordinary. In, yes, in the interview he said he was twenty seven, and I was doing. That. I'm counting on my fingers, thinking, wait a minute. So he started Ethereum when he was seventeen years old. I mean, yeah, yeah. I was talking to Charles Hoskinson the other day, who just looks like he's got one of those faces where he could be anything between about, you know. But I just always assumed Charles was sort of the same age as me, or maybe five years younger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it turned out he's only, I think he might even still be in his 20s. And you look at pictures of him and you're like, and you you listen to how articulate, articulate he is. Mm -hmm. And you're like, how can you be in your 20s? <laughs> and he, you know, Charles is a billionaire. Yeah. You. <laughs> so it's just extraordinary, the level of intellect in the space. But yeah, so, but I don't believe any of those guys. And Charles was like, you know, instrumental in the, in the founding of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, he did it with Vitalik, and I think they parted company at a certain point. But, but yeah, I think um, Satoshi needed to be a bit older. Maybe that theory's wrong. I don't know. But do you, do you think the anonymity has helped or hindered um, the popularity of Bitcoin? It's helped it. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, it's created a mystique around. I don't think anyone cares anymore. People are beyond caring. But at the time, it created a mystique around it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know initially my concern was thinking, wait a minute, what do you mean we don't know the person who created this? How can how can we trust it? Is there going to be some, you know, code inside that, you know, we invest money and then he's going to take it all? <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that it just seems that this code is very bulletproof. And because it's open source, that there's really a great checks and balances, which is within the whole blockchain technology itself. Yeah, well, listen, you know, I'm not uh, a coder. I've never written. Well, I've, the only code I've ever written is like the little bit of HTML you'd need to write posts on bulletin boards. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can. I'm only repeating what other people say. But but there's that guy Dan Kaminsky. Who I think he died quite recently. But he was the like the code breaker for Na, uh, for the um, for the feds. You know, for U.S. authorities. Mm -hmm. Like the top. And he tried and tried and tried to crack Bitcoin, and he couldn't. Mm -hmm. wow. He said it was the most. I can't remember his exact words, but something like the most bulletproof or the most resilient code ever invented or something is the, was his words. Yeah. Uh, let's go back. Uh, another intriguing part of the book is your coverage of uh, the Silk Road marketplace. Uh, tell our yeah. listeners a little bit about that. It's very intriguing. Yeah. Well, what a story. And I think <laughs> they've made a Netflix film about it now. I'm not sure how truthful it is, but basically it was, it was Amazon but for for drugs and for illegal <laughs> items and this chap called ross ulbricht was behind it unfortunately didn't protect his anonymity quite as well as satoshi nakamoto did and got rumbled and um it sounds like he was set up quite badly mm, but mm -hmm. you know he was one heck of an entrepreneur he, he set up a million dollar business or a hundred million dollar business and it just took something like six months to grow extraordinarily successful but um you used to go on it. It was so funny. You used to go on that website because there'd be like, on there'd be one page and it'd be selling, you know, some horrendous drug that's the scourge of society. <laughs> and then on the next page, there'd be advertising a, a, a Ludwig von Mises reading group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it, um, and I, I love too how, and you, you cover this in the book, how like reviews were really instrumental. Like, I mean, there would be, you know, a, a, a seller would get good reviews and bad reviews. And, you know, I mean, I think, <laughs> just think it's funny how it doesn't matter whether the B, the business is black market or, or legal that, you know, reviews and, and uh, buyer feedback is still very important to its success. Yeah, I don't know who invented the online review system, but the whole success of that site depended on the online review system. Yeah. And because, you know, you bought some weed off a bloke and the weed arrived and it was good quality weed and you got value for money and you gave the guy five stars. If he, if he ripped you off, you gave the guy one star. Right. And... So very quickly, the trustworthy sellers um, were able to uh, come to prominence, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know it, it's, it was it's it's quite wonderful, really. You know, it needed no um, outside regulation. It need right. not well, outside or even regulation from within. Just the review system in itself was was self regulating, and it allowed the the, the better sellers to come to prominence and the weaker sellers not to get noticed. And so it kind of forced sellers 
to be honourable and trustworthy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you know, you think of the time when you were a teenager and you were buying weed off a street corner off some dodgy bloke and he yeah. sells you, you know, mixed herbs or something. You, 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 you know, you've got no, there's no accountability. Uh, but if suddenly that guy's got, you know, a load of one, load of one star reviews on his, on his jacket, right. <laughs> you know, not to go to it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's such a interesting testament to the decentralized model of business where it's the people basically who are making or breaking the business, you know, it's not regulations, it's not, you know, um, uh, government, uh, intervention, you know, it's the people deciding it, which I, I thought was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was a beauty. It was a real testimony to free markets that, yeah. that, that site. Yeah. We had, and, um, it's a shame really, because you had buyers and sellers trading peacefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Until the government got involved. Even if it was sometimes, you know, firearms and poisons too. But yeah. I don't think he was. I think he stopped. I think he oh, took he? firearms off. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. I good. think it. I think it started with that, and then he thought, actually, do you know what? I better get rid of these. Right. So, I mean, but there will be. It's interesting because I was um, interested to see the other day about um, what's going on on darknet sites at the moment, mm -hmm. and whether you can buy. Um, uh, fake vaccine certificates. Because mm, mm -hmm. I figured, I thought that'd be quite an interesting story, you know. Sure. Whether people were, because, you know, there's a lot of people who um, are cynical about the vaccine. Right. They think it should have had more tests and whatever, right. um, but will still take it just for the sake of an easy life, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. because they want to be able to fly or they want to be able to go to this country and they've said you need a vaccine if you want to travel and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought that's a that's a real market waiting to happen, fake vaccine certificates. Mm -hmm. So I, I was just quite interested. And, and so I went online to look. And um, the one site I looked at, I forget, I think it was called White House, the White House. No. <laughs> <laughs> what a name for a for a illegal uh, drug dealing yeah. site but it, and they were refusing to uh allow them to be traded on their site hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and apparently not only were they refusing so but they were it was also the most um requested item Mm -hmm. At that time, this is this would be about a fortnight ago. Sure, sure. And, and actually, it's funny. I, I heard a. Uh, I'm in Southern California. I heard a story recently about um, a, a guy that was busted for exactly doing that. Now I don't know if he did it online or if he, you know, if he was like the the dodgy bloke at the corner. But uh, he did get busted for passing around these fake things. So I wouldn't be surprised if they are available online in the black market, on the black market. Yeah, I would have know. thought it's inevitable. Yeah. And, but, you know, and, and then, of course, then it goes to the quality of the uh, fake vaccine, you know, notification, you know, five stars. You know, you still have to get good reviews, right, or else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. you got to give good, good fake vaccines yeah. <laughs> as opposed to bad fake vaccines. <laughs> For part two of my interview with Dominic Frisbee, the author of Bitcoin, The Future of Money, I invite you to check out episode 18 of the Crypto for Newborns podcast, where we take baby steps around the block. I'm your host, Biff Laurie. Thanks for tuning in.